Hi, I'm Phil Liggett, and you're listening to the Spokesman Podcast. Welcome to Episode 8 of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast. This show was recorded Monday, November 27, 2006. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast is a combination of some of the best cycling podcasts and blogs on the internet. Each show brings together some of the most famous voices and writers in cycling for a lively discussion of the current cycling news. And now, here are the Spokesmen. Welcome to the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast. This podcast recorded Monday, November 27th, 2006, quite early for me. This is David Bernstein from the Fredcast Cycling Podcast, and with us today, Tim Jackson from Mozzie Bicycles. Hi, Tim. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. And Carlton Reed from Bike Biz Magazine and Cycling News and Views Podcast. Hi, Carlton. Good afternoon to you both. Hi there. Good to have both of you with us today. We have a couple of topics to talk about. Just, you know, it's that time of year. There's usually not a whole lot going on in cycling, but uh, there are a few new things going on that I definitely wanted to bring you guys on and talk about. And I think the first one, and I don't mean to start the show on a downer, but this is probably going to be dominating the cycling news for for quite a while. And as we were talking about before we started the show, Tim said that this gentleman is definitely going to be missed. I want to talk about Isaac Galvez. Isaac was... Um, from the Cast de Parnier team. I hope I haven't butchered that too bad. And uh, he was racing at the Six Days of Ghent, which is, correct me guys, because you know I'm not much of a track fan, but it's a track race uh, that, take part, uh, that, that takes place every year. And he was killed, which is not something that, that you're, you're used to hearing about in cycling. Tim, can you give us the details on this? What happened? From what I understand, was it was late during one of the, the last events of the evening, and um, Isaac and another rider, um, I'm trying to find his name here right now, and I can't, um, ah, Defa, Dimitri Defa, the two of them uh, collided up high on the track, apparently, and uh, Isaac collided very very hard with uh, a railing and uh, was knocked unconscious and really never recovered from that. They were able to revive him there trackside, apparently the paramedics were, but he passed away uh, due to the injuries en route to the hospital. Guys, fill me in a little bit about track racing because it's, like I said, it's really not something that I'm familiar with. Uh, Is this the first time something like this has happened in track racing? Certainly not the first, but it, it's one of the worst examples that I that I can cite in recent history. Um, Carlton would would certainly know better because the six day circuit is is so much bigger there than it is over here. So Carlton, I, I've never heard of it before. T- tell uh, me, it, tell it, me it, what a six day circuit is first of all. Well, it's something we don't get here. Um, it's something I can go and visit. It's uh, it, it's very much a, a Belgian thing, but it's huge, and uh, you see all the Flemish beers on the. Um, the trackside, all the adverts, it just looks very, very um, Belgian and wonderful. I've never been to it, but uh, it's like the Revolution, which I went to um, from the Manchester Velodrome the other day here, but held over six days. So lots and lots of uh, action-packed stuff, but dragged out over a, a, a period. But you said this isn't the first time that you can remember that, that there's been a death, right? I, I No, I, I can't remember a death at a, a trackside. Plenty of injuries, plenty of collarbones, um, plenty of head injuries, plenty of stuff. But to get this is obviously it's not unheard of because I'm sure there'll be others there. But this is a rarity; it's got to be. I, I've never heard of it. And what one of the things that also helps to make this so significant is that Isaac is a two-time world champion in the event that he died doing. The uh, Madison is a, a race that's run with teams of two riders who take turns slinging each other into the event, and um, Isaac was was in his section of the race, uh, and his partner was was uh, cooling down um, when this occurred. And uh, on top of Galvez being such a strong rider on the track, he's also a formidable rider on the road. And uh, Spanish riders are not known for being uh, 
very good sprinters in recent history. They're known largely as being climbers. So Isaac was kind of, kind of special in that regard to the Spanish cycling fans because he was one of their, if not their, best sprinter on the road as well as a world champion on the track. So he's, he's, he's going to leave a very big vacuum. He was a popular rider. And Tim, if, I, Tim, if I remember right, didn't he win? He was second place in, in the fourth stage of this year's tour. That is correct. Yeah, that so is correct. I mean, here's somebody who's really good on the track and also on the road. Carlton, you had something to say. Well, I'm, I'm just I was going to ask Tim, is he surprised it happened in the Madison? I am, honestly, kind of because that's the kind of thing that uh, you don't expect to happen to a world champion, a two-time world champion. Uh, crashes in Madison are kind of like crashes in NASCAR. You almost expect it because the, act, the action is just so furious and the hand, hand exchanges of rider to rider uh, easily get complicated and people go down. And that's, that, quite honestly, that's the reason why I don't race Madisons because for one, I'm not good at them. And secondly, I, I just, I don't see the, <laughs> I don't see me taking that risk. Although I race Kieran, so go figure. Um, but yeah, for, for Isaac Galvez to go down in a, in a Madison is pretty unheard of in my mind. I just wouldn't expect it. So, so if if you wouldn't mind, again, for those of us who are not track fans, tell mm-hmm. me the, what's a Kieran, what's a Madison? Um, tell me the different ty- types of of racing that go on sure. on the track. Well, there's there's many many different kinds of racing. Uh, there's gosh, probably twenty different events that you can do on the track. Um, but just citing the two examples of Kieran and Madison, uh, Kieran is the event that Carlton and I talked about previously, uh, where either a a pacer of some sort, whether it's another rider on an electric bicycle or a moped, as they frequently use in Europe, uh, or even another motorcycle, as we do here in California, because we have an open-air velodrome. Um, <clears throat> the riders on in the race are pulled up to a given speed, and then the tr- the pacer pulls off at a set distance. On our track, it's at a lap and a half to go because it's a large track. On smaller tracks, it's three laps to go, and then an all-out sprint takes on and it's it's a lot like rugby on wheels guys are trying to knock each other off their bikes essentially to get that very prized position behind the motorcycle uh, and then the furious sprint happens after that um, whereas Madison is is an event that's run similar to a points race where you have points awarded on given laps every three laps or five laps depending on what the format is but with Madison you have two riders on a team whereas one rider is racing down in the low section of the track the other rider is up high along the barriers, uh, either static and sitting at the rail, catching their breath, or just riding at a cool-down pace at the top of the track. And then they come down to join their partner, and their partner, who is in the sprint lane, grabs them by the hand or pushes them by the hip and slings them into the race. And that's how the rider exchange takes place. Now, add 12 teams on a track of two riders, and you can see where that could get a little complicated. But uh, Tim, uh, what I don't understand, and this is why I was asking the question before, was it happened on the barrier at the top of the track. Yeah, that would I, I didn't realize that. That that would. Uh, this is well. This is my reading of it. Maybe I got. I mean, if that, if that was on the cool down lap it, from the. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. That would be even more unusual because I wouldn't think yeah. that there would be enough speed at that at that pace at the top of the track. And that's the way I read it too. That kind of injury. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I read it the that, same way. I mean, it wasn't a crash that I could see that where they're all bundled down and they've hit the track below because that's where you get your collarbones. Right. Um, it's it's at the top of the track where you're not really uh, in conflict. Right, and, and, you're, and you're not going that fast. Down, and you come down off there. Right. So how would anybody be hitting you there at any speed to actually hit you onto the barrier? So... The only thing I can think of there immediately that comes to mind anyway is that there was an there was an exchange that had taken place and maybe Galvez was already high on track and Dimitri Dufau came up and didn't see him and was carrying too much speed and then the two hit. That's that's the only thing I can think of off the top of my head. You know, I, I keep saying I don't know this a lot about... This is still really strange. You know, I keep saying I don't know a lot about track racing and so that was... My read was exactly the same, was that it was at the top of the track and that, that he, he hit the railing there and I was going to say, you know... It, it, is this something that that's frequently occurs? You, you mentioned NASCAR, and that was the first thing I thought of when I, when I read about this accident, was a NASCAR 
uh, accident where the guys are at the top of the track and you know they, they touch bumpers and the next thing you know one of them's turning around and hitting the wall and it almost sounded like that and I was going to ask you whether there were things that we should be doing in track racing to increase the safety of the cyclists if they're if they're hitting these barriers but from t- listening to you guys it doesn't sound like they yeah there really isn't anything they could have done I, I don't think uh, it's just really one of those odd situations where it was just a you know, you hear the expression all the time, a freak accident, but that's that's exactly what it sounds like in this situation. It Especially was, was considering that, yeah, and the talent level of both of these riders, again, with, with Galvez being a two-time world champion in the event, and uh, DeFau being a, a very good uh, six-day rider as well. I mean, these are these are two guys that, that, for lack of a better way of putting it, really know how to do their jobs. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, it's unusual that these two are involved in such a tragic way. Wow. Well, it's 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 sad, and, and Tim, as you said earlier, he, he Galvez is going to be missed, and uh, it's it's tragedy when whenever anybody dies, but but to see somebody die in this way, it's uh, it's really a bad thing. I guess the only thing you can say that's a positive is that he died doing what he did really well and what he was, you know, very fond of. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, let's move on to to uh, lighter things if we will we you know we were talking on the last show about tyler hamilton uh, the fact that he's just coming off a two-year suspension for doping and a little bit of a talk of whether or not he's being treated like a, a second-class citizen in cycling uh, in that uh, r- really nobody was was looking for tyler to join a team uh, and unlike a guy like david miller uh, nobody tyler hadn't found a team yet well tyler's now found a team and it is the tinkoff credit systems team which is not well known to probably a lot of our listeners because it's not a pro tour team um carlton what do you know about this team what do you know about uh, tyler's chances of of getting back into the pro tour this year as a result of joining this team well it's uh you're right it's an unknown team in many ways it's a second division team it's not it's not exactly um, going to make any big headlines apart from having Tyler in its ranks and this is where the conflict is going to come of course because the UCI will not want Tyler and they've said they don't want Tyler to be competing even though he's he's uh, done his time uh, he, he still uh, affirms that he didn't do what um, people say he did and uh, but he's done his time so from that point of view he, he should be back racing if uh, there was any natural justice in the world um, but the UCI said he, he shouldn't be around he shouldn't be racing so this team it, it, are going to find it very hard to even get wild card uh, entries into the into the major tours uh, almost because Tyler's in the team Yeah. and uh, that's, it's going to be a fascinating tussle between the powers that be and these smaller teams so it'll be a politics it'll be that team clearly didn't get in because of this reason or it did get in because of that reason and it's it's another bit of a mess but the grand tours are already in a bit of a feud with the uci over which teams are allowed to come to their races anyway uh this may be one of an opportunity for them to thumb their nose at the uci and say we want tyler back and therefore we're going to invite tinkoff i mean isn't that at the root of of their their dispute with the uci oh yeah that's that's why it, it's going to be uh, both messy and interesting yeah. uh, for that very reason it's it's, it's all politics <laughs> and it's yeah, it's, uh, it's going to get steamy yeah, and the and the the two groups, the the two organizers and the UCI, are uh, about as well behaved as a pair of toddlers on a playground fighting over the last shovel in the sandbox. Uh, it's just the the arguments that they seem to get into just drive me insane, and I'm not even remotely involved with what they're doing. Um, but I, I yeah, they're going to keep fighting on this. Interestingly enough, though, I, I think that Tyler's presence on, on Tinkoff isn't going to help them with the uh, major tour organizers, though, because they're they're taking such an anti-doping stance as well. Uh, with the, the tour this year, obviously, we had the people who were implicated, and then teams were gone. Um, the, the Grand Tours are doing so much to try and remove any suspicion of doubt about their events that I think any whiff of controversy and Hamilton certainly brings a whiff um, will will keep teams out and it, it's it's ludicrous really 
Well, what about this team itself? Uh, we, we've all admitted, you know, it's not really a name that we're we're very familiar with. Um, it, we we talked about it before we started the call today. You know, there's there's not a whole lot of big names on that team. As a matter of fact, there's none. There's one, Tyler Hamilton, and that's it. Um, we talked well, about. Gotta, it. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say they've got a couple of other writers who are are good names. I mean, they've got Salvatore Comesso, who is a former Italian national champion and a winner of uh, I think two tour stages. Uh, and then the other big controversial guy would be um, that. <clears throat> pardon me, Danilo Hondo of Germany, who was earlier in the year sacked by his team, uh, Gerolsteiner, because of a, a doping controversy, and then he was reinstated by his federation, and now he's back to racing again. So there's that that other whiff of uh, controversy again. Um, so those, but those three riders are. Are strong riders, you know. Obviously, Tyler is who he is. Salvatore Camesso is uh, in the waning years of his career, and and Nani Lohando is a top-rate sprinter if he can get his legs back beneath him, which uh, may or may not happen. But he's certainly bringing plenty of controversy behind him. Um, but those those I think are the the three riders that anybody would recognize names of. So We're getting the yeah, team talked about, aren't we? We we now know the Tinkoff team. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that's true. That's, uh, you bring a couple of big names on, and then yeah, everybody knows the name of the team. So you wouldn't call this a second-class team then, but but they are a second-tier team because they're they're not really a pro tour team as of yet. Yeah, correct, correct. And and again, the the cast of supporting writers that they have are largely unknown writers. Uh, so what they can do, even at the top end of this second division of cycling, it remains to be seen. It'll it'll be a curious affair. I mean, because if they're going to throw all their eggs in one basket with Danny Lohando in a shorter race, do they have the support riders to get him to the finish line in a position to win the sprint? And uh, looking at the list of riders, I don't know that they do or don't. I mean, because I know nothing about them. Well, let me switch gears one more time and, and actually bring up a, a topic that I didn't even warn you guys about, but it reminded me of it while we were talking about this team. team that maybe doesn't have great support riders, you know, maybe a second-tier team. Let's go to the other end of the spectrum. Let's talk about Discovery for a second. Um, here's Discovery with three major stars on the team. Basso, Hincapi, Leipheimer. Uh, how's that going to shake out when you have these, these major riders with also some good support riders? Uh, what are their chances this year, and, and who's really the team leader? Who's, who's the one that, that, they, that they're going to hope for to win the major races this year? Uh, I think my, my personal thought is that it's going to be Basso just because he has the best natural talent of those three. Uh, Leipheimer has yet to confirm his... Uh, potential. I mean, when he won the Tour of Germany uh, last year, uh, that was a flash of his potential brilliance. But that was in a, a one-week stage race versus a three-week. He is he has yet to to really capitalize on abilities in a three-week race. And this year, Discovery threw a lot of hope into Hincapie, and he he couldn't produce in a three-week race. It isn't to say that he that it, that he can't. Um, it's just that he's still very much unproven in that kind of event. And, and yeah, not to say that George did poorly. No, he didn't do poorly. He just, he did well for himself. It was his first time in a, in a leadership position uh, in an event like that. I Carlton, mean, you were going to say I, something. Yeah. Well, Basso's your man. I mean, unfortunately, we've missed a whole year of him, really, in, in Grand Tours. So he's, he's not uh, out and forgotten, but... Uh, did we lose Carlton and again? There he is. Oh, there he is. Sorry, did he lose me there? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's Skypey for you. I was still here. Um, I was just talking rubbish, as usual. <laughs> Why does that happen when you start to talk rubbish, that it gets cut out on you? you know, I'm gonna no, call no, this. no. That it, I, I say the good stuff when you're not there. I, I'm, ah. I'm, I'm definitely going to title this episode, I'm Talking Rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're on, I think, no, you're on a good t- uh, 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 you're on a good line. Go ahead. Basto's your man. He, he's he's the one that's got the the form, I think, for over a, a long um, period on a tour, a grand tour. So he he's got to be the leader. Yeah. Okay. And he's the only one of the three who's actually won a grand tour. Exactly. So that that automatic, automatically uh, puts things in his favor. I was. I hope I mean, he's be hungry as well. 
He's yeah, be, he's going to have a lot to prove. Free, free. Yeah, I think, I think any of those guys who were quote-unquote implicated in the Puerto affair, I think that, that any of those guys who were not allowed to participate in the Tour de France, when they come back to the Tour this year, they're going to have that look in their eyes that just says, get out of my way. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm interviewed Basso at uh, at pre-tour this year when when the uh, they introduced the the team because it was actually in uh, London which is uh, unusual but CSC is based uh, the the office that was dealing with was based here so they did the team launch in London so I went down and uh, interviewed uh, Bianca Reist and Basso and Basso just came across as this wonderful warm almost soft personality and I just thought then. How does this guy have the anger to do something yeah. like that Armstrong does? It's right. almost that spark that's missing. And now, one would yeah. presume, he has that anger. He's mm-hmm. got that Lance Armstrong spark of, I hate the world, I'm going to do something. And he has the confidence of having won the Giro. So not only does he have the anger to drive him, but he's got the security and confidence to know that he can do it. So and he I has Brunel. Brunel's yeah. a big, big difference, I think. Yeah. So Basil yeah. and Brunel are a marriage made in heaven. Yeah. Well, speaking of a marriage made in heaven, <laughs> yes, this is a great transition. Uh, and this is something I just want to... Um, I want to talk about sensitively, and I want to... Because we don't have first-hand knowledge of this, so, uh, I, I, but I do want to touch on it, because I think that, that it, again, it's something that people are going to be talking about over the next few days and weeks. There's a new study out about cycling and sex. Uh, you'll recall that, I think it was back in 97, if I'm right, Carlton, there was a study on um, men and cycling, and the, the, the study's authors claimed that cycling uh, could potentially cause impotence in men. Well, there's a new study out, that is claiming that competitive women cyclists, to use their word, um, experience decreased genital sensation. Now, we had hoped to have a female voice on the show this week who could talk about this from uh, some experience, uh, if she wanted to. But I just wanted to talk about it because, according to the, the articles that I've read, this is really the first study that has looked at women cyclists. Although, Carlton, I think you've found something else. Is that right? Oh, yeah. I mean, this, I've done stories on this frequently. And it's uh, in the Journal of Sexual Medicine. They're talking about how this is the first time this has been discussed. It's like, well, just do a, a medical journal search, guys, because there's, there's tons of stuff yeah. out there. It's not the first <laughs> search. Uh, there was Bicyclist's Vulva was the one that was in the, the British Medical Journal about uh, five, six years ago. And there was, there was a whole host of, of citations in that report as well. So, no, it's not the first. And, and, and what did that re- first report uh, conclude? Do, do you uh, recall? Well, yeah, well it, yes, it, it said there was... the. <laughs> lots of graphic pictures as well which I'm now trying to block out of my mind but it, it said there was, there was a problem and it, if I remember rightly it was something like long distance so it, it was talking about um, say women who did 12 hour events 12 hour time trials which clearly there's, there's anybody who does that you, you're going right. to have uh, a little numbness pressure yeah uh, and this latest study is another one from Dr. Erwin Goldstein's team uh, which is talking about recreational cycling is bad for you, which clearly is 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 not quite the same. Yeah, because as, in, uh, in this the study they case. were in this study they were looking at women who consistently rode an average of at least ten miles per week. Uh, that's not a whole lot of cycling. Oh well, it's also not a lot of cyclists. There was forty-eight people in the sample mm-hmm. and twenty-two women runners. These are ju- it's unscientific. These are not big samples. Um, I, I always run away from from any scientific study which which can posit any uh, facts from, from very small population samples and, uh, and it's also from a journal which has been is run by somebody who doesn't like cycling who said you should never go cycling uh, his great quote Dr. Erwin Goldstein who's the, the, the journal owner uh, cycling is the worst thing you could possibly do um, and cycling should be banned so it's from this kind of background where papers like this get published by this journal. 
Yeah, uh, they come up every there. every year. Well, and yeah, they've every report that I've seen like this to me reads as though it has an immediate bias slant to it from the very beginning, uh, because for every. Uh, Every study that I've seen that says anything negative about cycling, there are so many more that say something positive about cycling. So it really depends on, on which direction the particular researcher is taking. Um, one of the first things that came to mind, though, when I saw this article was, uh, one was, oh, great, here we go again. And secondly was, um, great, now we're going to have a whole new flood of women-specific saddles on the market. Just like we did with the men's saddles when when uh, Dr. Minkow, who was working with Specialized, created the, the now famous Minkow wedge style of saddle, where it had the the split back end on it and the the groove down the center of it. And everywhere you look, those saddles were popping up left and right because you know you you can't throw in any comment about erectile dysfunction for men and not have the market respond immediately. Mm. Well, let me ask you guys. Do, do you ride with a saddle with a groove in it? No, I do not. Carlton? I, I can now uh, admit freely that uh, my willy has been wired up to the machines. That oh, that's right. I remember things. that. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I remember that. You're going to have to expand upon that. Uh, well, well, Specialized have these camps each year. There's one coming up in January, in fact, where they bring across uh, Dr. Minkow, they bring across the the... German specialists who they wire up your genitalia and they test the oxygen content as you're pedaling and the, the, the basic rule of, if I can say this rule of thumb, <laughs> to get up off your saddle frequently because the oxygen right. um, decreases rapidly when you're sitting on even the best of the, the comfort saddles and as soon as you get out of the saddle the oxygen just shoots up and the, the better saddles clearly um, actually keep that oxygen um, better than, than the, the really, really bad saddles. But whether it's a groove or not a groove is, is uh, largely irrelevant. It's got to be the, the saddle that suits, suits you. Mm-hmm. And when the, they were doing the, they tested the women as well, but they can't wire women up in exactly the same way. So it, it tends to be just um, pressure pads rather than being physically uh, having your penis actually wired up. Um, so it's not the testing isn't quite so good for the women. So this study is it, there's, there's potentially all sorts of flaws in this study, and I I would hazard a guess that it's all from what I can read of it, it's all interviews. Now, come on, this is not this is not science. Yeah, interviews are always subjective. You're never going to get real objective data from just talking to somebody. Right, and, and depending on who the researcher is, they can interpret the the interview to be whatever they want, and they can of course skew it. Uh, in the way that they ask the question as well. Right. Which is what I do here on this show. You know, we talk about... Yeah, they've done a good job. <laughs> Thank you. We, we talk about studies, right? And, and we've said, well, you know, you can have a study that says one way uh, for, for decreased sensitivity or for erectile dysfunction, or you can have a study going the other way. Uh, it, it's funny because... Uh, as we talked about, or maybe we didn't, you know, last Thursday was Thanksgiving here in the States, and so we had, I don't know, 14, 15 people here around my table. And my sister, who's a Ph.D. candidate, is always big on, on studies, and she always has to have real data. She can't go by anecdotal evidence. So we're sitting around, and, and her husband, as a matter of fact, started explaining how bicycles should not be allowed on streets, especially in California. And, and so, of course... I think he was baiting me a bit, but I went for it. Oh. And I said, well, well, why do you say that? Well, he says, well, he used to live in Boston. And here in, in California, he hears about fatal accidents on the road every day. But when he lived in Boston, he lived there for 12 years, and he only heard about it maybe five times. And therefore, drivers in Southern California are uh, more dangerous than drivers in New England, and therefore bicycles shouldn't be allowed on the road nice conclusion right hmm. and so i of course said well wait a minute your your wife is the scientist where are the studies to prove this this is just anecdotal evidence question are there some places in the country or in the world where it is less safe 
for cyclists to be on the road? And is it the drivers? Is it the roads? What do you think it is? I I know I sprung this one on you too, but yeah, I have man, to. that's 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 a baited question right there. <laughs> <laughs> I would have to agree though that to to some extent there are places where for all of the reasons that you list the the roads, the riders, the drivers, where it is less less wise to uh, ride your bike, just like it's less wise to try and ride your bike on a freeway. I mean, it, that's a, a common sense thing there. However, I will agree that Southern California drivers are the worst in the world and uh, seem to be out to run over every cyclist they can find. How's that for baiting? That was, that was, that was really good. Now I'm going to get the letters from the Southern California drivers. <laughs> but, but, you know, it's, it's funny. Uh, I, I can, I'm just joking. I can tell you, if it's, if it's not location, it's certainly time, because I went for, I don't know, it was maybe a 25, 30-mile ride on Thanksgiving Day, and I felt less safe that day than I have in a long time. And I think it's just mm-hmm. because people were going to places they weren't familiar. You know, they're going to families' houses and friends' mm-hmm. houses. And they were trying to find the place instead of actually watching the road. And it was it was a scary day to be on a bike. Yeah, driving with a, a map in one hand and their cell phone in the other uh, with four kids in the back screaming and hollering while they're trying to figure out where they're going. Yeah, that's uh, a distracted driver is dangerous whether they're in Southern California or on Pluto. I mean, it's this... It's the same thing. Yeah. Now, Carlton, you've you've cycled all over the world. I mean, you've done some cycle touring. Have you found some places where it was just really scary? At Cairo can be kind of hairy. Anywhere in the Middle East is is interesting, but they they seem to have this. You know how bats kind of uh, get through the night sky by using sonar. Mm-hmm. So you'll find that even though Middle Eastern countries, the drivers seem amazingly erratic and not paying any attention to anything yet they can just skim in and out of each other without crashing that much so it, it looks dangerous but actually when you're, you're in the middle of it for some reason maybe it's uh, machismo it's whatever they seem to, to, to be safer than, than you'd think but then again there's nobody cycling so you know, you know it's like uh, if you've been to Paris and uh, when I've driven in, in France I've always said I would never get into that roundabout at the at the uh, Arc de Triomphe mm-hmm. um, but I got in it once I think because I got lost and you know it is a dance people just know where they need to be and how they mm-hmm. need to get there and it's almost it, it, it's 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 almost psychic it's almost like they're speaking to each other without speaking to, and they get where they need to go so I know what you mean and you probably yeah. know you're going to crash. You're about to crash, so you're on the brake all the time, then accelerating, and, and you, you're expecting something to happen. Whereas on a freeway, you're probably turning around, putting your music on, as Tim was saying. You're distracted because you think, oh, it's a freeway, there's nothing coming. And that's when you can hit the cyclist, or that's when you can, you can dunch into an, another car. Because you're not expecting the crash. If you're expecting the crash, you don't crash. See, my problem, just to sort of bring it back to cycling, my problem with the whole conversation on Thanksgiving was that that I, I don't think it's right that because the drivers are less skilled that the cyclists should be banned from the roads. Uh, it's not, you know, I watch the majority of cyclists out there and, well, I take that back. There are a lot of them who are really good and who are really courteous and signal and do all the right things. There are others of them, especially I notice when they're in packs and they're all wearing the same uniform, uh, yes, us uh, racer types. When well, it's it's not just race because you know what, Tim. When you go out riding by yourself, you're probably really really safe. But when you get together with your team, it may be that some of your teammates. Again, it's the machismo and it's the group think, and we're safe in a group, and so we can pretty much do whatever it is we want when we're on the right. road. We're going to run this red light. We're going to run this stop sign because we don't want to have to accelerate again. Yeah, exactly. And that happens too often, I, and I personally hate that. Yeah, it, it's it really is. I mean, there's a particular team around here where where I I live, and when I see one of their riders in 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 their team kit. I try to avoid them. I don't even want to be associated with them because I know the way that they ride. And yeah. I just, you know, I, so I guess what I'm saying is I don't think it's right that, that, that because the drivers are less skilled that the cyclists should be punished. I mean, I almost wanted to go to the extreme of saying, all right, so because you think that the drivers aren't looking for cyclists and the cyclists should be banned, well, then I guess we shouldn't allow pedestrians on the road and I guess we shouldn't allow children on the sidewalks because nobody's watching for them either. Right. Uh, I think it's it's we need to get to a point where we educate the motorists, um, while we continue to try to educate the cyclists. Uh, yeah, and I think that goes back to a comment that that uh, that I made uh, in a previous podcast about 
uh, cycling in the U.S. in general, um, how there's just not enough infrastructure to support it, and that's going to always be one of the things that continues to hold it back. And I think that goes along with what your brother-in-law was saying, and you know, it, it's it's a lack of infrastructure that makes cycling more dangerous or not to to some level. Um, having having motorists and cyclists on the same lane is obviously not ideal. If you could have them separated somehow, that would be more ideal. But at least in this country, there's not a lot of support for that. Not enough, anyway, to affect it to happen. So, so let me go one step further. Also at the table at Thanksgiving, my father-in-law, uh, who lives in a small town in the Northwest and who is a city councilman up there. And this is a resort community, so I'm not going to say where it is or who he is so that he doesn't get identified. But um, one of the battles that he fights there is that they have a great trail network that is mixed use. It's uh, for walkers, joggers, cyclists. And their big thing is that they're encouraging the, the hardcore cyclists uh, to not use that trail network, to actually get them out on the road, because it's, it's, it's frankly more dangerous if you're going 15, 20, 25 miles an hour on your bike and you come around a turn and there's somebody walking their dog or they've got their yeah. child in a stroller. And so their big challenge up there is to get those cyclists onto the road and then at the same time to encourage them to either ride single file or at worst to abreast. So even in a place where you do have the infrastructure, you still have the challenges of getting those road users in the right place doing the right thing. Exactly. And that's where a mixed-use trail like that is again a mixed bag um, it's again still not ideal because you're absolutely correct having having cyclists trying to go as quickly as they feel like they need or want uh, on a trail that's that's full of people who are going a lot slower uh, is not ideal yeah well, let's move on to one more topic uh, real quick, if we can. And this one is apropos to the season. It's uh, the holiday season. Christmas is coming and all of the other great gift-giving holidays that we've got. I thought I would challenge you guys and, and sort of put you on the spot a little bit and find out what you thought were great gifts to give to cyclists. Um, and maybe we could give some ideas here to the spouses and family members of, of the cyclists and, and, and get some great ideas of things that they can buy. Now, I'm doing a, a gift guide on, on the Fredcast this week. I had my listeners write in with some great comments about some, some great ideas for gifts, but I want to hear what you guys thought. So let's just sort of go around the table, um, starting with Tim here. <laughs> Tim, what do you think would be a great gift for somebody who wants to spend, say, less than $50? Um, a mozzie water bottle or socks for their favorite riding mozzie, favorite mozzie riding loved one. Uh, we do have, have both available and in stock. <laughs> okay, okay, well, I had to do the obvious thing. Um, you know, for under 50 bucks, uh, one of the things, especially when I was a starving racer, that I used to love getting uh, was cans of hydration drink powder mix because it's the kind of thing that you want and you need, but when you've only got 50 bucks in your pocket, and you've got races coming up, or you need to get those new, new knee warmers or arm warmers to keep from freezing your butt off on your winter training rides, you, you don't spend the money on, on stuff like hydration and food. And I think those are excellent gifts, personally, for that price range. That's a great idea. Carlton, what do you think? Under 50 bucks, I'd quite like the Bike Passion calendar, because the freebie one I got was confiscated. <laughs> Oh, she found it, did she? <laughs> she did. I, the last podcast, I went downstairs uh, while I was, you were talking. I collected it because I thought it was a Mac product. turned out to be this calendar, and it lasted about an hour before it was put in the, the pile of, I am going to give this away to my brother for his Christmas present. So, <laughs> I'm sorry to hear that. But it makes a great gift. Um, my, mine, and this one comes from a listener, actually, because I thought it was such a great idea. And, and along the lines of what you said, Tim, something that we all need and something that we can never get enough of sometimes, some great spare tubes. I was just going to say that. Yeah, because, you know, yeah. I, I mean, I, I, had a, I had a blowout the other day in Griffith Park, and I went through my last tube, and I thought, oh, man, i got to order some more tubes. And you can never have enough of them, and yeah. they make great stocking stuffers, and I think that that would be a great thing. 
um, for people to get under 50 bucks. So a couple of uh, tubes, uh, a cycle passion calendar, and a, a can of hydration drink, and <laughs> you've got a weekend. But, but definitely not cycling socks, because we're in the trade, so we've all got 50 pairs each. <laughs> That's right. Yes, but how many of them say mozzie on them? <laughs> well, you know, if you'd send me a pair, I'd have one. <laughs> uh, okay, Carlton. Give me, give me a great gift idea for somebody who wants to spend a little bit more. Under $200. Silence. Did we lose him? No, he's thinking. Well, I'm, 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 there he is. I, I'm still here? Yeah, go no, ahead. Can you hear me? Yeah, go ahead. Oh, yeah. You can hear me? Oh, well, I would say, for, for me personally, I would go for a, another helmet cam, uh, a solid-state thing, rather than a hooks-up-to-your-video camera. Tell me about that. That sounds cool. He's gone again. Okay, Tim, your turn. Tell me. <laughs> oh, there he is. Carlton, tell me about that. That sounds like a really cool gizmo. Well, I've got a helmet camera which goes onto a video camera. And I actually had it on a, a track guy that uh, went around the revolution last week for me and uh, did all the track racing. Um, but they're kind of heavy and they need to go into the video. But you can now get them where they're just integral. So it's solid state and it records to its own little hard disk and you take it on and off your helmet and attach it to your computer and there you've got your ride. You have a brand name for that? Oh, there's, there's, there's all sorts there's of Several of them there. there. Yeah, there's quite a few. I mean, the oh. one I use is 2020. Yes, that's the one I heard of recently. Oh, I, I absolutely have to have one of those. Hold on, let me write that down, a little note to my wife. Yeah, um, I need one of those too. Have her get one for me. <laughs> you know, I think it's the word 20 and then the digits 20. Yeah. I believe so. That is really cool. Well, all right, so before I put Tim on the spot, here's, here's my under $200 gift. Um, every cyclist needs a good work stand, and I think mm -hmm. that, that that would make a fantastic gift is a really good work stand because even if we've got a shop that does the majority of the work on our bike, you know, we, we need to wash our bikes, uh, we need to do a little bit of tweaking here and there and just a little adjusting, and, you know, I've, I've had a really crappy work stand for a while, and it's really hard to do work on your bike if you don't have uh, have it solidly mounted in a work stand. So I think a, uh, whether it's from Park or Blackburn or any of the other companies out there, I think a good work stand makes, makes a great gift. Yeah, a good portable fold folding work stand is worth its weight in gold some days. Yeah, absolutely. Alright, Tim, your turn. Yeah, good one. Gosh, you stole my idea <laughs> before I even had it. Um, for under 200 um, you know, cycling electronics are always nice because I'm, I'm always breaking my computer uh, for whatever reason. Maybe it's just because I'm electronically inept and uh, enough of an idiot that I break stuff. Uh, you know, computers, uh, heart rate monitors. You know, I, I, I had a teammate once who said you can never have enough heart rate monitors. And this guy had like eight of them. Hmm. And it just depended on his mood, I guess, or which team kid he was riding in. He could just change it out. But... Um, Heart rate monitors really are uh, a lot of fun to, to have uh, just and, and an effective training tool. Um, again, for the, the uh, Burke racer uh, on your Christmas shopping list. Uh, other than that, especially this time of year, good winter training clothes. A couple sets of arm warmers, knee warmers, leg warmers, vests, things like that are pretty indispensable. Um, there's a lot of guys that I know, again, the budget racer in me, uh, don't want to mess up their really good team kit. So having good uh, non-team non specific uh, winter training gear is great, you know, a good raincoat, things like that. Yeah, another great idea. And, and in the last couple of years, that seems to be what I've gotten for the holidays from, from my family. Mm. Uh, has, been, has been some great winter. <laughs> I know, winter's relative in Southern California. Right, right. But, uh, you know, cold weather gear. Yeah. Sure. Okay, under $1,000, who wants to go first? Go ahead, Carlton. Really? But uh, with the heart rate monitor, but spend a bit more money and uh, go out plump for the Garmin 305, uh, which is a GPS and it tells you where you're going and it also measures your heart rate or you're going to have the, uh, the cadence monitor. That's, that's, that's a cool trick. And by the way, it's, it's not mm -hmm. an either or because I've got the 305 with both cadence and heart rate. Yeah, true. You can get just extra add-on, can't you? Yeah, and it's... it's Again, that's it's a very cool thing, and it was on my list. So you took mine, so I got to figure out my mine for $100,000. But no, Carlton, you are absolutely right. That's a fantastic gift. And I haven't got one of those. So if uh, you did want to buy me that, 
I'm your man. Real good. Excellent. <laughs> so there you go, Tim. We, we've got a, a gift idea for Carlton. Exactly. All right, your turn. Uh, I, the budget racer in me cries out. Um, this time of year, uh, if you live somewhere where it actually does have weather and snow and rain and all that kind of thing, a good set of winter training wheels. Mm. Wheels that you can take out and bash through potholes and ride around in the muck um, are, are excellent. Excellent items and well under a thousand dollars. Great idea. And I'll, and one I'll, one I'll, year I did get exactly that. I, I'd been complaining about having to spend so much time chewing up my lightweight race wheels through the winter, and uh, I ended up getting a set of nice training wheels that were heavy and uh, very reliable, and it made for a great winter of training. Is that somebody's cuckoo clock? <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. No, I had in mind this rur- rural idyll of you being in the woods somewhere. It's a real cook. Do you feel like you're in the middle of Bavaria right now? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I love it. Uh, okay, my gift under $1,000. If you can find one for under $1,000, a good power meter. Ooh, yeah. Uh, because, you know, I, I, I've been training with heart rate for a, for a long time, but I've gotten to a certain point where heart rate doesn't tell the whole story. And I think to really go beyond my current fitness level and to really make a boost in, in my performance, in my speed, I think a power meter is what I'm going to need. And so if you can find a great power meter, um, that's a fantastic gift. And, and it sort of goes along the lines of new wheels because for some power meters, of course, you are going to need wheels. Yeah, a separate mm-hmm. wheel. So I think that that's something that, that people should also consider. You might want to put that in the sky is the limit category, though. <laughs> yeah, well, you may be right. And that's, and that's, Those are not exactly uh, cheap. Well, you know, at Interbike this year, I went around and I talked to every single company that made power meters because I'm working on a roundup of power meters for my show and mm. where I'm going to compare the different ones because it gets confusing for the yeah. average consumer. There's so many different models ranging from just a couple hundred dollars up to several thousand dollars. Right. And they're so confused about what to buy and what all the features are. So, And how they come about providing that data, too. Exactly. And, and, you know, if it's not attached to your wheel, if it's not part of your hub, are you still getting good data? It's it's, it's still reliable. And so I'm going to be doing Mm -hmm. a comparison. And it's going to be a long-term test before I'm ready to, to do the roundup. But... I want to be able to do it because, as you said, you can spend so much money, or you can just spend a little bit, and I want consumers to be able to understand what the differences are and what they're getting for their money. I so. think that'll be very good roundup. Yeah. Okay, last topic, and, and, and you mentioned it, Tim. It's the, the sky's the limit. If you had unlimited funds, what would you buy? And if you don't mind, I'm going to go first because it's fairly general, and it, it may be similar to what you guys might talk about, so feel free to be a little bit more specific. But for me... It's a, a good custom bike um, because I think that you can you can spend a lot of money on a really good bike and you can get really close. Um, and I've gotten very close on my bike and 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 I'm very happy with it. But for for somebody who just has unlimited funds and wants to spend spend spend, uh, a custom bike may be the way to go. But now from the man who makes bicycles himself, he's going to tell me why I'm wrong. Tim Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I, I can't argue that. I, I tell people all the time that they'll never find a better riding bike than one that's made for them. Mm-hmm. Um, I, obviously, it's, it's my job to sell bikes that come out of a box. Mm-hmm. However, that said, not everybody is going to fit a bike that comes out of a box. Some people absolutely will. I am one of those lucky people that the bikes that we produce just happen to fit me incredibly well. So, you know, call it dumb luck, and, you know, I'm a dumb guy, so that, that, that would work. Um, but for some people, that's never going to be the case. Maybe someone has, you know, a, a leg-to-arm ratio that's that's nowhere near what a bike out of the box is going to fit. Um, and heck yeah, if I had more money than I knew what to do with, I would get a custom bike made as well. I'd, you know, spend the money and go to Australia and have a custom BT carbon track bike made tomorrow if I had the money. Besides, I'd get to go ride in Sydney again, and I like that. <laughs> Drivers there are better than in Southern California. Um, they're about the same. You know, if, interestingly enough, as a, a little segue uh, earlier in our conversation about dangerous places, when I traveled to Australia, I took my bike with me, and um, my host there, my distributor for Australia, was telling me that I was absolutely insane to try and ride in Sydney because the traffic was just going to be too much and drivers were just too dangerous. And I felt absolutely at home there. It was as easy as riding in Southern California, uh, if not easier. And 
just riding on the opposite side of the road was a little different, but um, I adapted to that very quickly, and the flow of traffic was was normal. So anyway, a little segue there. So is, is, is your Sky's the Limit also a custom bike? I would have to agree with that, absolutely. Okay, that's, that's kind of the, the ultimate bike geek present. Absolutely. Yes. Carlton, what do you think? Yeah, I'd agree with Tim in that if, if you are a normal guy, then you can get on on a normal bike. Uh, custom is very much uh, for small people like me or very tall people not like me. And uh, they would definitely benefit from from the, the not out of the box box uh, bikes for sure. Uh, on my Sky's the Limit gift, you were talking before about uh, your winter gear, which uh, didn't sound like my winter gear at all. So I'd say <laughs> I'll whole house. I'll move the whole house to Southern California, and then I can ride in the sunshine. Even with our bad drivers, that's a good gift. I would go somewhere where the, the, they wouldn't have the bad drivers. I would just stay a little bit out. Maybe go to Baja California. There's some places there where the roads are still very nice, and there's hardly a driver around for days. I've cycled down there, so yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. I'm thinking about that now. <laughs> well, I like it. The good gifts, excellent. Um, and I like the one about moving to Southern California because then we we could actually do this live if you did that. Yeah, but <laughs> well, isn't that what South Africa? I kind of like South Africa too. So and and again, great surfing, just like Southern California. Mm. Lots of wind though. Lots of wind. Don't 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 go there actually. <laughs> okay. Well, guys, I think this has been a full show. I think we've we've had some great topics, and I once again appreciate the fact that you, uh, well, in Tim's case, got up early, or in Carlton's case, uh, uh, managed to stay awake. awake. Yeah, managed yeah. to stay awake before you went and got to get the kids from school. So, uh, thanks again for joining us, Tim. Tell everybody uh, again who you are and how they can reach you if they'd like to. <laughs> so Tim Jackson of Mozzie Bicycles. I am the brand manager there, and they can check me out at the Mozzie Guy blog. That's mozzieguy.blogspot, or they can uh, find out what I'm rambling on about from the marketing standpoint at the uh, Shut Up and Drink the Kool Aid Bicycle Marketing website as well. Excellent, Carlton. Where can they find you? Okay, my day job uh, when I'm not doing this, of course, is on bikebiz.com, uh, which is a news website uh, for the global bike trade. And on my podcast, it's Cycling News and Views on iTunes. And then on YouTube, I've got something which I just did yesterday, which is YouTube forward slash, I think it's group forward slash bicycle maintenance, which is a whole bunch of uh, video podcasts of bike mechanicing for beginners. So what's Excellent. a quick release and what's the what's a press valve, all that kind of stuff. Oh, that's great. And, and, and maybe next time we'll get to the, the, the controversial topic of which way <laughs> your quick-release mm. skewer should be pointing. Yeah, get, some, get some advice on that, huh? Absolutely. Get some engineers to tell me. That's right. Well, when you use track wheels, you don't have to worry about that. Um. True. And I'm David Bernstein from the Fredcast Cycling Podcast. Nobody cares about my day job. That's at www.thefredcast.com. And you can send me an email anytime to thefredcast at gmail.com. Once again, guys, thank you so much for joining us. And to the listeners, get out there and ride.